Good morning, everybody. Uh, I got to put my glasses on. Uh, welcome again to Pillar Church of Jacksonville. My name is Richard, and I am one of the elders here at Pillar Jacks. Uh, my normal scene is actually, though, with the youth group rather than being up here. But uh, I've been blessed with the opportunity to preach God's word this morning, and I'm, I'm very thankful for this opportunity. But before we begin, uh, a word to all of the youth here this morning. You know who you are. Let's see if I can make eye contact. <clears throat> you have no excuse for not being prepared the next time we gather to discuss what we are about to talk about. <laughs> Consider this your fair warning. Ah, there we go. We got some sitting up front. <clears throat> and from up here, just note that I can tell when you are actually taking notes versus pretending to take notes or being deep in thought or actually sleeping instead of being deep in thought. So just, just know that I'm watching you here this morning. <clears throat> As a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John since last fall. And throughout this time, we've kept the refrain to which John has written in this book found in John chapter 20, verses, verse 31. And it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In recent weeks, we've been walking through several chapters of the book that are commonly referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse, where Jesus is both instructing and encouraging his disciples during his final hours with them. And last week in chapter 17, Jesus prays with his disciples to the Father, making it known that his hour has now come. And this is where we find ourselves in the text this morning, in John chapter 18. It's likely a familiar passage for, for most of us, as it's John's account of Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the fact that this account is detailed from varying perspectives throughout all four gospel accounts ought to speak to the significance of this account within God's sovereign plan for redemption of his people. So please turn with me to John chapter 18. And if you need a Bible this morning, again, you can find those under the seat in front of you. Uh, it's going to be on page 850. And as you're turning there, uh, and before we read from the scripture this morning, I would like to pose a few questions to you. What is faithfulness? What comes to mind when you hear the word faithfulness? And what does it mean to you in your life to be found faithful? See, whether you realize it or not, we all have formed in our minds a standard of faithfulness. What being faithful ought to look like in our lives. And this standard or this idea is constantly shaped and influenced by the life that is happening all around us. For some of us, this idea is shaped through our relationships, our marriages, our children, our friends. We long to be trusted by others, and so we seek to be found faithful. For some of us, if you were around in the 80s, you uh, happened to have heard of the rock band by the name of Journey, Maybe it's their song that's entitled Faithfully that has helped shape your standard of faithfulness this morning. I, let's pray that is really not the case, though. 
For others still, this idea is, is influenced by our careers. Desiring to be found faithful to our profession, our very life's work, our calling. And those of you that have served or are still serving in the military, this should be a pretty easy one to grasp. We are almost indoctrinated with this concept of faithfulness, loyalty to our brothers and sisters, commitment to our mission and dedication to everything that is asked of us. And I'd be surprised if there is someone here this morning who hasn't heard of the Marine Corps motto, Semper Fidelis. If that person's here this morning, uh, I would probably not want to make myself known. But I'll ask for your input here this morning, please. Is there anyone here who can tell me what Semper Fidelis stands for? Shout it out. Always faithful. Yes, I knew there would be someone, right? But I, but I almost feel obligated here to share with you that as an army soldier, we too in the army share similar ideals. We have what is called the army values. And because the army loves their acronyms so much, it was decided to have our core values spell out the word leadership. And just in case you need some help this morning, I'll spell that out for you. Here are the Army Corps values. L, leadership. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we'll start again. L, loyalty. Always loyal. L, loyalty. D, duty. R, respect. S, selfless service. H, honor. I, integrity. And P, personal courage. Now, if you noticed, we unfortunately didn't seem to care too much about the E and the A in leadership, and the Army chose to instead live with a misspelled acronym for our, our core values. <laughs> Fortunately, though, we, we aren't known for our spelling capabilities, and I'm not too concerned about my reputation here today. But let it be known to all of you Marines, that is the one freebie I will give to you this morning. All kidding aside, we, we can begin to see how this idea of faithfulness is shaped from many different angles in our lives. Of course, as Christians, we know at least in part that we are called to be faithful or full of faith, and yet that our actions and our works should be an outpouring to that which we profess. And whether you're a Christian or not here this morning, I hope we can all come to humble ourselves enough and to admit that whatever our standard of faithfulness is, we often find that we fall short of that standard. The reason I bring this up is because, we, as we will soon read, there are several examples of faithfulness in the text this morning. And I believe that the contrast between them is worth examining in greater depth. So please join me as we read God's word this morning in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, 
I am he. Now Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for, his pe- for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Please pray with me. Lord God, you are so perfectly merciful and gracious, full of steadfast, unchanging love and faithfulness towards your children. Thank you. Lord, I pray that you would be at work through your word this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word, to receive it, and that your spirit would continue to transform us. Lord, I pray that my words, my flesh, my sinfulness, would not stand in the way of your text this morning, and that in spite of it, you would be most glorified. Amen. If it hasn't been made clear already this morning, The title for the sermon is Semper Fidelis, which we all know now is Latin for 
always faithful. There we go. Get some, get some crowd interaction. As we begin, there are a few things of notice I would like to first point out as we observe the text collectively. Note the structure of the text. John here is recounting the story of what takes place in the garden and thereafter. In the text, there's, there's considerably less dialogue than in previous chapters, but considerably more action taking place. And following the events of the garden, John, he splits the story in two, telling the reader what's taking place from two contrasting perspectives, both Peter and Jesus. And John bounces back and forth between the two perspectives, almost as if intentional to draw the reader into a deeper understanding of what's taking place and the circumstances of the situation and to highlight the emotion that's involved in the decisions that are on display. Note also the shift in the tone to which John writes this account. It begins immediately with a great sense of bitter betrayal, followed by a sense of courage and boldness that drives the reader to feel the sense of sorrow and sting from the denial of Jesus, who in the midst of the persecution and injustice remains calm, submissive, and faithful in the purpose that he knew he must accomplish. And it is in this context we see what we are to ultimately observe here this morning. That as Christians, we must look to and rest in Christ's faithfulness, not our own. I'm going to say that once more for you, that this morning we are to ultimately observe and take away from the text that as Christians, we must look to and rest in Christ's faithfulness, not our own. So to help us see this, there are several observations I would like to make of the text this morning involving three very prominent characters we have just read about. The first observation I would like to make is to observe the faithfulness of Judas. Yes, the faithfulness of Judas. You might be scratching your head at that thought or that statement, wondering how that would make sense. We, we just read the account of Judas betraying Jesus. How is that faithful? To help us understand Judas' faithfulness, let's look to Scripture for some context. What do we know of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot? Well, he was chosen from among the disciples to be one of Jesus' twelve apostles. And he remained as such throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. From this, we, we infer at least that he had a firsthand account of Jesus' life his actions, his teachings, his miracles. On at least a superficial level, Judas was counted as an intimate friend of Jesus. And as we pick up the text this morning, starting in verse 2, we read, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. We catch just a glimpse of the intimacy of the relationship in that he knew Jesus well enough to know where to go looking for him at the time where he would be most vulnerable for capture. What else do we know about Judas? 
Back in John chapter 12, we read the account of Mary anointing Jesus with expensive perfume. And in response to this action, Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John provides some amplifying information in saying then, he said this, not, he said this, that is Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So we learn here that at least Judas had a passion for money. He was in charge of the money bag, which we presume is of the disciples. But John doesn't tell us from the text that he was a good steward of money. Rather, he was a thief, implying he was dishonest and probably cared maybe a little too much about the money. In fact, Judas cared so much for the money that he was willing to go to the chief priests who sought to arrest Jesus and barter for his capture. With some background and context, we begin to see Judas's faithfulness. Judas was faithful to that which he desired most, money. His faithfulness becomes clearly evident from the text where his premeditated actions cannot be overlooked. Back in verse 3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas not only makes a deal with the chief priests for money, but in order to ensure he gets what he wants, he goes out and he helps procure the soldiers who are going to arrest Jesus. And he's not ready to just arrest Jesus, but fight if necessary to arrest Jesus. And we know from other accounts still that Judas had it planned in advance to identify Jesus with a kiss. You see, Judas was absolutely faithful to that which he desired the most, but entirely faithless unto Christ. It is simple enough here to say that Judas never knew Jesus as the Christ. And you might cringe at that thought, that Judas never knew Christ, especially when we consider everything that's just been made known. He was with Jesus throughout his entire earthly ministry. But it's true nonetheless. What do we learn from Judas's faithfulness or faithlessness? What are the implications for us? First, we must understand that there's a difference between knowing of Christ, having a knowledge of God, and actually knowing Christ, knowing the one triune God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Simply pretending to know Christ will work for a time. I mean, Look to Judas' example. He blended in just fine. When the disciples are around the table with Jesus in the upper room and Jesus drops this bombshell of a statement that one of you will betray me, recall that the disciples don't all immediately turn and point to Judas saying, yep, it's him. No. Recall what they do. They all look to themselves and they ask, is it I? No one assumes Judas Yes, pretending to know Jesus will work for a time, a season, or possibly even a lifetime. But true faithfulness will play itself out as it did with Judas. 
As Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Luke, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mammon, wealth, material possessions, idols in the place of God. The example of Judas ought to be for us a sobering reminder of this truth to cause within us careful examination this morning. Just as Judas was faithful to that which he desired most, are you faithful to that which you desire most? I'll break it down even further than that by asking, what do you desire most? And are you faithful unto that? Maybe, though, the most important question to ask as we observe Judas's faithfulness is this. Do you know Christ? Not like Judas knew Christ, but do you truly know Christ in the way God's word and his Holy Spirit reveal him? If your answer to that question is no, or if you feel a sense of uneasiness in attempting to answer that question, heed the warning of Judas's faithfulness this morning. With that, may I offer some encouragement. For though it was foretold the way of Judas, the seed of the serpent, that prophecy should be fulfilled through his actions, that is not the case for you this morning. Psalm 95 tells us that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So how long will you sit idle, hearing the truth, and yet not respond to it? The implications here are eternal. And I will paraphrase from James, who says, But there are those who say, Today or tomorrow you will go into such and such a town, and you will choose to do this, and you will choose to do that. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are but a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. God's word is clear. Recognize your own sinfulness before a perfectly faithful, holy, and righteous God. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Again, let us observe the faithfulness of Judas. Now, the second observation I would like to make from the text is to observe the faithfulness of Peter. Now, compared to our first observation, this one might not seem as hard to grasp hold of for us. Beginning in verse 10, we see Peter's bold actions on display, and they certainly seem faithful to Christ. And as we did with Judas, it'll do us well to look to Scripture to help build context in understanding the faithfulness of Peter. So we know that Peter is among the first whom Jesus calls as a disciple. He tells him plainly, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, it says, they left their nets and they followed him. That seems to be a good example of faithfulness to me. Willing to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. On another occasion, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
I would argue here that this is quite the statement of faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. Once again, in the upper room, just before Jesus tells of Peter's denial, Peter proclaims to Jesus, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. See, Peter was clearly zealous for the Lord Jesus, accurately proclaiming who he was and faithful even to the point of death. And this boldness is well exhibited as we look back to the text, starting in verse 10, where it says this, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. See, Peter is proving to himself and to Jesus that he was indeed faithful. He was good on his word that he had earlier proclaimed, and he was willing to fight in defense of Jesus against the mob seeking to arrest him. To Peter's surprise, however, Jesus immediately stops and rebukes him in his demonstration of faithfulness. And notice here how similar his response is to the time Jesus rebukes Peter in saying this. He says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The question we ought to ask is this. What was lacking in Peter? But we'll continue on to observe how Peter responds after Jesus is arrested. Picking up in verse 15, all of the disciples have scattered, and it is only Peter and one other disciple who remain, standing faithful and true to Jesus. I would say that that's also a sign of faithfulness on Peter's part. When all others scatter, he's the only one who does not fall away. And he's willing to follow his teacher in impending danger and persecution. Continuing on, though, in verse 16 and 17, Peter is given the opportunity to enter into the courtyard of the high priest so that he could be near Jesus during his trial. And he's questioned by the servant girl. She says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? His reply, I am not. I am not. I would like to think that in this moment, Peter could have come up with any question or a response to that question other than what he did. He could have deflected the question He could have played dumb. He could have mumbled something under his breath or probably just avoided the question altogether. After all, what we see from the text is that the other disciple who was already identified with Jesus, he had already spoken to the servant girl and allowed his entrance. But Peter defensively and decisively says, I am not. His actions immediately thereafter are also quite revealing and we can pick it up in verse 18 where the servants and the officers built a fire to keep warm. What does Peter do here? He goes and he stands among them, those who just arrested Jesus, almost as if to blend in and to keep himself warm. All the while, Jesus is unjustly tried and questioned and beaten. While one denial might seem like something we could overlook or look past, unfortunately, Peter's faithfulness here continues to decline in the midst of all that is taking place. If we continue reading in verse 25 now, the soldiers and the officers who were standing around him question him, saying, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? To which he again replies, I am not. 
As if that were not enough, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just cut off, he asks them, weren't you the man just flinging your sword around out in the garden? And again, Peter denies it to the point of invoking a curse upon himself to swear by. What has taken place within Peter to cause such a shift in his demeanor, his temperament, and his actions? He goes from this guns blazing, faithful Peter, fearless, the rock, willing to decapitate someone in defense of Jesus, to mere moments later, actively denying that he even knows the man. What happened to Peter's faithfulness? From Scripture, we read that Jesus himself explains what has taken place when he says to Peter earlier, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. What does it mean to be sifted like wheat? In context here, it actually does make quite a bit of sense. Sifting is the final step in harvesting wheat and is the process of filtering out the wheat grain from the chaff and the dirt and the debris that accumulates throughout the harvesting process. And what happens is all of it goes into this sieve, which is a contraption that is used to filter out the wheat grain from everything else. The workers have to violently shake this sieve in order to allow the filtering process to have its effect to allow the edible wheat grain to be separated from the rest. So you see, Satan, he demanded for the opportunity to violently shake Peter, and he was granted it. Try to put yourself in Peter's shoes, but for a moment here. You have a mob of men surrounding you, seeking to arrest the one who you have spent the past three years of your life with, your friend, the one who you've watched perform the very miracles of God. And you see Judas standing there unashamedly in opposition. To say the least, you are ready to do battle against the enemy. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes you and your bold nature and calmly submits himself to them. To top it all off, all of your friends scatter in an instant. This is not how you nor Peter anticipated the events in the garden that night to unfold. In but a moment, Peter's firm foundation was greatly shaken. And what is the result? What of Peter's faithfulness? I contend that Peter's faith did not fail him, for in fact we know from Scripture that Jesus himself prays that Peter's faith would not fail him. Rather, through Peter's actions, we see the anemic state of his own faithfulness. His faithfulness was incomplete. It was lacking that which he needed the most. You see, Peter was resting in his own strength, relying on his own ability to remain faithful to Christ. And Jesus, again, states this very succinctly to Peter earlier in the evening in the garden when he says, Peter, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. When tested, when given the opportunity to deny himself, to take up his cross and follow Christ, his own strength 
fails him, and he selfishly denies Christ. You see, in fear, he chooses self-preservation instead of self-sacrifice, and the true condition of his sinful heart is exposed. Peter did not yet understand in full the things of God. In fact, I would argue that he couldn't understand, as Christ had yet to drink the cup that the Father had given him. It wouldn't be until after the rooster crowed, after Peter realized his own self-reliance, and after Jesus dies on the cross, after he's buried and raised up from the grave, that Peter would begin to understand the things of God. That there was only one thing that could make his faith actually complete, and it was the one thing to which he could not do himself. As we asked with Judas, what are the implications for us as we observe the faithfulness of Peter here this morning? Do you find that when reading this account, you relate to Peter in your zealousness for Christ, your boldness for Christ? Or do you find yourself subconsciously saying, man, how could Peter do such a thing? I would never deny Christ in that way. I would never do that to my Lord and Savior. If that's you, which I would be willing to bet and go out on a limb and say that we've all been there before, we all must heed the warning of Peter's faithfulness. I mean, who among us hasn't been given the opportunity to proclaim Christ amidst the conversations throughout our day, whether at the store, in the workplace, at school, only to waver in our confidence and pass at the opportunity. Maybe it's the opportunity to refute wrongdoing because you know in your heart that it goes against God's moral law. But when push comes to shove, you fade away. Because you fear man and you fear how they will respond to your actions and how it may change their perception of you. What about confronting sin? Whether that's in someone else's life, which can certainly be easier, or your own life. Do you think that you have that under control on your own? But these examples are, seem like a far cry from a situation where physical threat to your own life was a real possibility. But then in those instances, would you, would you then expect to be steadfast and faithful? I do not intend to beat us down this morning with remorse or regret. Rather, I want us to see the reality of the issue that's at hand. We are so prone as sinful human beings to look inward for our strength. We are selfish and prideful. We are self-reliant and oftentimes stubborn in thinking that we can save ourselves. As Jesus rebuked Peter, we too, we constantly set our minds on the things of man rather than the things of God. And we ignore the simple fact that though the Spirit is indeed willing, our flesh is weak. So let me spell it out plainly. We all, like Peter, are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to muster up enough strength to be righteous, to be obedient enough, to be faithful enough before God. Paul, he makes this clear in his letter to the Galatians, saying that if righteousness were through the law, if we could muster up enough strength on our own to be righteous, well then, Christ died for no purpose. 
So the question then for you and for us is this. Are you depending upon your own faithfulness this morning? As was Peter. Maybe the question ought not to be, are you? But when do you find yourself depending upon your own faithfulness? When do you find yourself depending upon your own faithfulness instead of the necessary works of Christ that he accomplished for your eternal salvation? May we observe the faithfulness of Peter and heed its warning. So far we've covered the, uh, the faithfulness of Judas and the faithfulness of Peter. And you might guess where we are headed next. But the third observation from the text I would like to make this morning is to observe the faithfulness of Jesus. And we really don't need to go beyond the first verse to see it. Now last week, Jonathan Gentry, he walked us through John 17, helping us to see that in praying to the Father, that Jesus praying to the Father, he knows in full that his hour has come. And he literally says it in his prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Jesus here takes action. He goes to the garden, to the place where he knows is set to face the ruler of this world. And Judas arrives with his band of soldiers, his officers and priests. Continuing on into verse 4, it says this, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He engages the crowd. Again, he takes action. He initiates the conversation with purpose and boldness. And don't look past the statement of fact here made by John where it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, See, Jesus actually told his disciples on numerous occasions that all, everything that was to take place of him. We read from Matthew, Jesus says this, You see, we are going up to Jerusalem, as he speaks to his disciples, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. You see, Jesus knew all that would happen to him, and still came forward. Unafraid of the mob of soldiers that surrounded him, he openly declares who he is. And as they ask for Jesus of Nazareth, he answers them, I am he. What takes place next in the text is, is quite the observation by John. So turn or go to verse 6, and it says this, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back, and fell to the ground. Now, the Greek translation of the word spoken here by Jesus actually translates to I am. And while there's speculation as to what took place in this instant, simply observe from the text this morning that Jesus openly made himself known, his true identity, the fullness of God incarnate to the crowd that surrounded him, and you see, you can read the result. Regardless of how you would interpret this encounter, it does not negate the fact of the unrelenting faithfulness of Jesus on display. 
As we continue on, though, in verse 8 and 9, Jesus remains faithful yet again to his prayer from earlier that evening, bringing to completion the words that he had spoken to the Father. When he said that he would not lose one of those given to him, and again, we, we can see Christ's faithfulness through his rebuke of Peter. For he knew in this instant that although well-intentioned, Peter's actions were not only a serious threat to his earthly ministry, but it was also in direct opposition to the will of the Father. Hence, in verse 11, he directs Peter to put his sword back into its sheath. From Matthew's gospel, we know that in this very moment, Jesus, he could have easily appealed to the Father and brought down legions of angels in his defense and once again make known to all his true identity. But, Christ says, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He concludes his rebuke with this in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? As I said earlier, we are all faithful to something. Jesus was unwavering faithful, unwaveringly faithful in the midst of betrayal, persecution, and violence that we see here this morning. He was entirely faithful to his Father's will. And as we continue on further into verses 19 through 24, Jesus is unjustly questioned before Annas and beaten. He remains, though, blameless in their questioning ensuring that he leaves his accusers no room for further accusation. In every instance of the text this morning, Jesus remains perfectly obedient, always faithful. He submits entirely to the Father's will because he knows he must faithfully drink the cup the Father has prepared for him. But what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? It's the same cup that earlier in the evening Jesus is agonizing over in the garden. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It is the cup of God's wrath, God's judgment on sin. More than that, this cup of wrath that Jesus refers to was the just punishment for our sin placed upon the perfect and spotless lamb of God instead of sinners like us. Why? Because it was God's eternal plan before the foundation of the world to redeem his people through the blood of Christ, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth to the glory of God. If you don't believe me, let me read this of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus knew there was no other way for our salvation that he must drink the cup that the Father had prepared for him. And there was nothing that would stand in his way. What are the implications for us this morning? I think it's really quite simple. Look to and rest in Christ's faithfulness, not your own. Look to and rest in Christ's perfect faithfulness, not your own. What faithfulness would you possess if it were not first for Christ, who is the founder of our very salvation? What would you possess if it were not first for his perfect faithfulness unto the Father? I don't think any other implication is necessary than to simply observe the faithfulness of Christ from the text this morning. Before we close this morning, there's one more observation I would like to make from the text, which is this. Observe the faithfulness of God. Observe the faithfulness of God in the midst of Judas's faithlessness. We see that God is sovereignly at work in spite of man's own sinful actions using them to faithfully fulfill all that God has promised. Shouldn't this be a comfort to us, knowing that God worked through arguably the greatest sin mankind has ever known, the betrayal and death of his own son? May this provide us with the proper perspective of God's faithfulness when sin is seemingly all around us. As Scripture tells us what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Observe the faithfulness of God to his own children through Peter's denial. See, God uses the enemy. He uses Satan to bring Peter to his knees, to break his own pride and his own self-reliance. God's aim here was to help Peter understand that his dependence must be in Christ alone. We see God's work in Peter come full circle when Peter states this in the book of Acts, he's referring to Jesus and he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This too ought to be a comfort to us, knowing that God works through even the most difficult of trials to bring himself glory. That in the midst of what seems like failure to us, we can still trust God and his unchanging faithfulness to work for his good purposes. Lastly, though, observe from the text this morning God's faithfulness to his eternal plan of redemption and reconciliation for his chosen people. Observe God's faithfulness to his eternal plan of redemption and reconciliation for God's chosen people. Note here from the text the similarity to that of Genesis chapter 3. We have a sinless man in a garden facing off with the serpent in both accounts. But what Adam fails to do in the garden, Christ faithfully and perfectly accomplished in the garden, so fulfilling God's covenant promise 
to his people. Praise God this morning that his covenant faithfulness does not depend upon our own. As I close, let me draw your attention to the first hymn that we sang together this morning. I believe these words capture well the intent of John's account that we just read. It says this, Come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the king, he, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, who took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, he, the perfect Son of Man. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam, come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. Brothers and sisters, we stand forgiven at the cross this morning. Let us look to and rest in Christ's perfect faithfulness. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for your unchanging, perfect faithfulness to those whom you've called. God, we thank you for the perfect spotless lamb whom before the foundation of the world you had it planned to send to the cross to die for our sins so that we could be redeemed, that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you for that this morning. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.